0: And there he is saying net zero is Boris's biggest mistake. The day before that, the main leader column in the Daily Mail saying Boris has made a very big mistake on that. You know, Even if we're aiming by 2020, 2050 to have net zero, the way we're going about it is an act of incredible self-harm. Uh, and so I see big shifts in opinions. I've even seen some opinion polls uh, move on this. So no, I think there is a very big change I think the concept of national interest is very much back on the agenda. I think we'll look back in years to come and say Brexit actually started this. Brexit made us think about things in a different way. And this current crisis has accelerated that trend. And I would add to that something else that's interesting.
1: Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing, and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, you're off on a secret mission later this week, so we're recording a bit earlier than usual, which means we won't be reviewing this week's news, we're talking about some more general issues. And the one I wanted to start with, because you've sort of got your your finger on the pulse of the silent majority as I see it, I want to ask you about this recent outrageous commentary that's been coming from some of the the big policymakers all around the world recently. Uh, the comments, such as we should be eating lentils instead of meat to try and get around this this inflation, we should be having shorter showers, according to Margarita Vestager, the European Commissioner for Competition, and teenagers should be having shorter showers. Sh- shorter showers, she said, in order to stick it to Putin, uh, was her comment. And, and I think it was um, the uh, Lagarde, Christine Lagarde, the head of the ECB, saying. Uh, that people cared more about their jobs and the value of their, of their savings as though there was some sort of trade-off. I just get the impression that the commentary that's coming from thought leaders in the media and, and politicians and, and people in, in you know, official places in government and the World Economic Forum, all these sorts of places, they're getting a bit ridiculous. And at some point, I'm assuming there'll be some sort of pushback. Well, look,
0: I mean, if you want to stick it to Putin, um, have a chat with the Germans. And after all, they're funding the war. I mean, let's not mince our words about this. You know, you can limit what Russians have in their bank accounts in London so that Mr. Abramovich now can't pay his staff. They're not going to be too thrilled, are they? Um, And meanwhile, Germany is buying, we think probably nearly 60% of its gas now is coming from Russia, vast amounts of oil. And yeah, they're funding the missiles that are striking into Ukrainian buildings. How about that, Chancellor Schultz? Pick the bones out of that one. Um, So look, a lot of this is utter nonsense. Uh, When it comes to eating lentils, having shorter showers, well, it's all, of course, because of the great new religion that has replaced God um, of alarmist climate change. All the while that the Chinese are still building the vastest uh, coal-fired power stations you've ever seen. And between China and India, They're going to burn 4 billion tonnes of coal this year. When Lagarde talks about jobs, meaning more than money and savings, I've done my best to keep away from the Great Reset. I've done my best to keep away from the big WF conspiracy theory. They're making it very difficult for me to do that. (laughs) I'm not quite fully there, um, but it is quite disturbing to hear this sort of thing. I also noted that inflation in the Netherlands, hit 12% last week. I mean, that is a really big number, way ahead, uh, perhaps, of where the rest of us are. Um, So, look, uh, you know, policymakers in the EU telling us to tighten our belts. You know, it's not actually 1940 quite yet, thank goodness. Um, And and, and really, you know, when it comes to the sheer hypocrisy, the sheer hypocrisy of trade with Russia, um, I find the whole thing pretty unbearable, frankly.
1: One of the things that I didn't really appreciate about the Eurosceptic movement, despite having had a childhood in the UK, is that it was was a very long process over many decades in order to become successful in the end. Is there something brewing in this latest mess in the Eurozone of the energy crisis that has the same sort of weight? Or do you think the sort of long history and the long run-up to the equivalent of Brexit isn't quite there in the EU?
0: Oh, I think the change of attitudes is going to happen a lot more quickly than Brexit. Um, I think that we are voters, uh, the middle ground of centre opinion, which we touched on earlier, um, has moved away from globalisation, has moved away from just in time supply chains, uh, as if these things were somehow virtuous and good, uh, is increasingly concerned about mass importation of cheap undercutting labour. Just look at the PO row that's going on right at the moment. Uh, and it's really interesting. Um, about a month ago, I launched this little campaign, you know, vote power, not poverty, uh, basically aiming for self-sufficiency of energy supply and for the UK to rethink itself and turn it around into being a net exporter of energy rather than a large importer. Now, of course, I've been met with all the usual resistance um, and the hate mob um, and had to cancel an event because of threats. I mean, look, you know, we're used to this. Um, And we've had people in the last weeks gluing themselves to LBC's microphone, uh, trying to stop oil refineries from working. I mean, they're away with the fairies, this month. I mean, the fact is, it doesn't matter how many blooming wind turbines you build or solar panels you put up, we are going to need fossil fuels for a very, very long time to come. Fascinating piece by journalist Ian Dale about his new electric car, how he drove down from Yorkshire to Kent, a journey that should have taken four hours, took him 11 because he couldn't find charging points, And what he got. To, so you know, do you see what I mean? We're a long, 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 long way away from not needing fossil fuels. But what I've noticed is a big change in the commentariat. Charles Moore in the Telegraph yesterday. You know, Lord Moore, of course, as he now is, you know, a real Tory loyalist. He'd support the Tory Party, whatever they did, whatever they said. And there he is saying net zero is Boris's biggest mistake. The day before that, the main leader column. In the daily mail saying boris has made a very big mistake on that you know even if we're aiming by 2020, 2050 to have net zero the way we're going about it is an act of incredible self-harm uh, and so i see big shifts in opinions i've even seen some opinion polls uh, move on this so no i think there is a very big change i think the concept of national interest is very much back on the agenda. I think we'll look back in years to come and say, Brexit actually started this. Brexit made us think about things in a different way. And this current crisis has accelerated that trend. And I would add to that something else that's interesting. Uh, Johnson now talking very positively about nuclear energy, um, not being contradicted at all by Keir Starmer. Uh, And this follows up my recent visit to America, uh, when I was talking to some people in the uranium industry showing me Look, a three-mile island, Okay, it's 40 years ago, but there have been memories of that that have lingered. Uh, Now, the opinion polls in America shifting quite firmly uh, towards saying investment in nuclear. Uh, Clearly, there's going to be some investment in nuclear in the UK. The trouble is it'll take eight or nine years from, you know, saying, yes, let's do it, to be coming on stream. Um, A change of nuclear policy in Belgium, um, a slight change of nuclear policy even in Germany. Um, uh, clearly, uh, you know, talk of of sanctions on Russia, on uranium, haven't happened yet, but talks of it. So you kind of think that the uranium industry uh, may be in for quite a good few years. I'm certainly now very firmly of that view. There will be a lot more nuclear coming, but none of it will be on stream before 2030. So it's a long answer to a short question. But yes, it was a rapid change of thought about energy supply self-sufficiency, not being reliant on people like Mr Putin or Qatar for that matter or anybody else um, and, and, and much more of a conversation uh, at election time around the concept of national interest.
1: Yeah, you've answered a series of follow-up questions there about the irony of, of the Russian sanctions making people question our ability to achieve the net zero goals and and also just this issue of uh, the transition to nuclear. So the, the last question for you then is there is a bit of a movement within the uranium industry, the uranium mining industry, to delay production until they have a lot of certainty when it comes to prices. In other words, they're not bringing their mines back online until they're able to sell the, the, the uranium that those mines will produce at a much higher price than currently. Are you interested in the uranium space and as an investment at this point?
0: Yes, I really am. And I think, um, funny enough, I think the mines that do decide to move might actually get first mover advantage. Yes, they'll be taking a bit of a risk because the legislative changes to to, to, approvals rather uh, won't have gone through. Um, but I I think there are quite sound reasons to feel quite positive around the uranium industry, around the nuclear industry. Um, look, I mean, the fact is, you know, if, if the entirety of the Western world's politicians absolutely believe that carbon dioxide is going to fry us all to a crisp within the next few years. They've got no other option. There is nothing else they can do. I mean, we have 11,000 of these appalling, and I think they're appalling, wind turbines across the United Kingdom. And last Monday morning at 9am, they were producing 0.6% of of our energy needs. You know, and you'll hear well-funded, taxpayer-funded spokesmen on behalf of this industry telling you how marvellous it is. Uh, But the fact is it can be highly ineffective when you get a big anti-cyclone over the United Kingdom or elsewhere. Um, and, and the more wind turbines you build, the more gas you need when the wind doesn't blow. So we need to be sensible about this. And I, I have to say, I think that the fact that there's a 25% surcharge on everybody's electricity bill to pay for renewable and social obligations, namely subsidies, I think the whole thing's an absolute disgrace. I think the renewable energy needs to stand on its own two feet. I think there are elements, Nick, of solar. I think solar on roofs for domestic hot water, sure, it takes a few years to pay it off, but actually I can see a lot of sense in that. That's something I'm thinking about doing myself. That makes sense. But When it comes to powering a national grid, the problem with wind is the intermittence, the reliance on gas, but also the massive changes to the structure of the grid itself. Because of that lack of reliability, which adds even more costs actually to your price of electricity than that 25%. Uh, Just you wait till this becomes an electoral issue. There are going to be a lot of very, very upset, angry, struggling voters out there.
1: Yeah, we'll have uh, some upcoming articles about this challenge between having renewables in the grid and requiring energy storage as part of that versus using all of the resources needed to produce those batteries in actual transport uses where they are needed because you you need a battery if you're going to have an electric car and so on and so forth. Nigel, thanks for joining us and to everyone at home, thanks for joining us as well.